Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. And this week, I am delighted to be joined by Yasha Munk. He is a lecturer in government at Harvard University and is author of a big book about the threat to liberal democracy, which will be coming out in the spring. And he has got a lot of people talking about these topics with a very influential article he wrote in the Journal of Democracy called The Democratic Disconnect, where he talked about the danger of deconsolidation. Yasha, why don't we go straight into this? If you think about it as a as a professor and a thinker about the idea of liberal democracy, what, what does the liberal order actually mean in the real world for you? Well, so there's a domestic element and an international element to it. Um, part of the liberal order is the importance and power in the world of liberal democracies that internally uh, manage to combine these two things that we think of as going naturally together, um, but are actually difficult to hold together. One of them is liberalism, the other is democracy. So liberalism understood as uh, the rule of law, protection of individual rights, and crucially protection of minority rights, societies in which even members of ethnic and religious minorities are treated with the same respect as other groups. And on the other side, you have the idea of democracy, which I think we often sort of bake a lot into. It becomes confusing what we mean. Um, and it's really helpful to think of it in a pretty minimalist way as just a set of institutions and ideas that actually translate the popular will into public policy. Now, that is threatened domestically. It's threatened in two ways. The more more obvious one, which is that there's a rise of authoritarian populists who say, I alone stand for the real people. I'm going to solve all of the problems. And uh, when they end up running into obstacles and uh, roadblocks, they say we need to get rid of independent institutions, undermine independent courts that might have uh, the power to stop my agenda, um, be much more assertive against external enemies, and they wind up abolishing part of the rule of law, um, violating individual rights. But on the other side, I think we've for a long time had this system of uh, quite what I call sort of undemocratic liberalism, uh, a preservation of rights that often does away with translating other views into public policies. And so you have this sort of double domestic element. Then there's obviously the international uh, level, where we often see that um, precisely the same kinds of people who are authoritarian populists at home, violate individual rights at home, um, who don't care about the rule-bound nature of their constitutional order, um, also don't have a lot of respect for the sort of international rules and norms that we've had in the international system for a long time. Um, basic norms like uh, the integrity of uh, the territory of other nations, the idea that there are uh, common institutions which can adjudicate conflicts we have, disagreements we have, um, an attachment to the United Nations as a forum for resolving disputes. 
the preservation of international free trade order and so on. So what you're saying is that after the end of the Cold War, we had an idea, firstly, that liberalism and democracy went together hand by hand domestically. And also there was this kind of idea of democratic enlargement that as democracy spread around the world, countries would become more and more liberal, more and more attached to an international system. And what we're seeing is that both of those things are being kind of disproved. At home, we're seeing much more of a conflict between democracy and uh, liberalism, and that the link was maybe a contingent one rather than a necessary one. And then internationally, the order is not necessarily as kind of robust as, as we thought. I mean, how, how do those two levels relate to each other in your mind? Yeah, so I think um, they relate to each other in a sort of complicated way, right? Because you've always had countries that were part of a liberal international order in, in some way without actually themselves being democracies, right? So part of the idea of a liberal international order is institutions like the United Nations, um, which obviously give real voice and importance to China and Russia and other uh, dictatorships. So, uh, you know, perhaps you could have a preservation of a liberal international order, even as the weight of democratic countries in the world erodes, and even if some countries that used to be democracies cease to be democracies. One of the interesting things as well is, is that in many countries, not least in America, many people think that that international order is actually built at the expense of democracy. And certainly in Britain, where I'm sitting at the moment, this whole idea of taking back control, uh, which was at, central to the, the Brexit campaign, was essentially uh, an idea that the indigenous democratic system is being destroyed by the, by the international order. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it's actually worth um, being open-minded about some of those claims. Um, you know, a lot of the claims in British debate, I think, are either straightforwardly wrong or misleading. Um, but there is some amount of real conflict between those two things. Um, you know, so there's this sort of budding literature on the idea of the way in which a set of policy issues have been taken out of democratic relation. Um, so this includes, you know, a growing role in independence of central banks. It includes the way in which various bureaucratic agencies have become more and more independent. And yes, the European Union give things that used to be in the hand of parliaments and therefore part of democratic contestation over to bureaucrats. Now, most people who write about this have a sort of easy solution to that, which is, well, all of this is terrible. You have to destroy all of those institutions and return sovereignty to the people bound within the nation state. And um, and finally, you, you will have people feeling more engaged in the political process, being less tempted to vote for these liberal populists who are seen as a reaction against all of this, problem solved. Now, I think that actually the dilemma is much deeper than that, because when you look at a thing like the European Union, there's a good reason for it, which is that you need those trade blocks, you need to give European countries scale and weight if they're going to solve problems, whether it's climate change, whether it's other kinds of economic problems. Um, each individual nation state just can't do that on its own. But since the democratic public still pretty much exists at the level of a nation state, putting it in the hands of these international organizations does make it more difficult to have democratic oversight over those decisions. So I actually see a much deeper dilemma there than either the people who want to say, look, there's nothing to worry about here, or the people who say, well, all of this is a sort of elite plot against the people and you just have to return 
sovereignty to the people and problem solved. So this is all very complicated, actually. There's no uh, clear picture emerging from what you're saying at a domestic and an international level. Um, and the, the relationships between liberalism, democracy, the international, the national, it's, it's like um, three-dimensional chess, the way that you're kind of describing it. Maybe we should sort of go deeper into some of those different elements. You've been thinking a lot about the the way that people's attitudes towards democracy and liberalism are changing at a kind of um, national level and have been doing a lot of empirical research. Can you explain some of those things that you've written about in your article in the Journal of Democracy and other places a bit more? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, there was this sort of assumption that political scientists and social scientists had, but journalists and, and ordinary people also had, which is that democracy um, in countries like Great Britain, like the United States, like Sweden, is there to stay. There's a recognition that, of course, um, if your country is poor, it might be difficult to sustain democracy. Um, even if your country is rich, but it's just not a democracy yet, it hasn't had a number of changeovers of government for free and fair elections, it might never get to be a democracy. But in countries where democracy has been around for a while, and the countries are quite affluent, educated, you really don't have to worry about its persistence. Uh, and there's good evidence for it. The richest democracy ever to collapse was Argentina in 1975, which had a GDP per capita of about $14,000 in today's terms. Um, and so once you're above that threshold, you were seemingly secure. Now, the way in which political scientists explained that was to say that democracy in those places had become the only game in town. And what that meant was that all major politicians and parties accepted basic democratic rules, that most citizens gave huge importance to living in a democracy, and they rejected sort of authoritarian alternatives to democracy out of hand. Um, and we started to look at that in research with my colleague Roberto Stefanfor um, and found that this is no longer the case. That obviously you see the rapid rise of authoritarian populists who very explicitly reject basic democratic rules. And we also see a real transformation, quite a shocking transformation, in the views of ordinary citizens. So in the United States, for example, when you ask people born in the 1930s or 1940s how important it is to them to live in a democracy, over two-thirds say 10 out of 10, really important to me. Once you get to millennials born since 1980, only about one-third of them. When you ask about uh, extreme alternatives to democracy, like army rule, you get a similar picture. 20 years ago, one in 16 Americans said that uh, they thought army rule was a good system of government. And now it's one in six. By the way, I'm just looking at some uh, of that data for, for Great Britain, and, and, and I'm going to have a report coming out on that with a colleague. And, and it's really striking. So in Britain, for example, you know, 20 years ago, only about one in four Brits said they like the idea of a strongman leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament and elections. And now it's gone up to one in two, 50% of Brits think. That's really something fundamental going on. And what's your explanation for, for why this is happening? I think there's a whole set of uh, things going on here. Um, to me, sort of two things are absolutely crucial, and they're often put as being in conflict with each other. One is an economic story, and one is a cultural story. Well, the economic story is simple. You know, in the States, from 1935 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. And since 1985, it's been flat. 
And that changes how people think about politics. They used to, they never used to love politicians and think that, you know, everybody in Washington, D.C. is a paragon of moral virtue. We used to say, well, you know what? I'm twice as rich as my dad was. My kids can be twice as rich as me. You know, let's give them the benefit of a doubt. And now they say, no, I've worked really hard all my life and I'm not doing any better than my parents were. My kids are probably going to do worse than me. Let's throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. And by the way, this picture is not quite as extreme, but pretty similar in other countries. So in Britain, especially among young Brits, uh, they haven't seen a real improvement in the living standard uh, in a very long time. And, and the polls in, in a lot of European countries, including the UK, show that most people think that their kids will have a less good standard of living than they have themselves. Yeah, and it's really this sort of pessimism about the future that's driving it. A lot of people are saying, you know, I did okay, but I'm really worried about what's going to happen in the future. The second big element, I think, is cultural, right? I mean, especially in Europe, you used to have countries that were founded as mono-ethnic and monocultural. I mean, democracy took root in a lot of Europe in the 1950s, when those countries were more homogeneous than they had ever been. And since then, you've had, you know, a rapid increase in immigration. You've had countries having to reconceive of themselves as multi-ethnic democracies. And there are milieus and there are regions of those countries welcome that. And there are milieus and there are regions that are quite resentful about that. So that leads to a, to a sense of threat and majorities, majorities who feel that they're becoming minorities, which uh, are reached out to by parties like the National Front in France and UKIP in the UK. Where, and in fact, it's the same story as Trump, isn't it? They both, what year is it? Is it 2047 or something that where America becomes majority non-white, um, which leads to the promise of making America white again? I don't quite buy that story, by the way. I mean, this is really a side note, but it's, um, there's a bunch of wrong assumptions uh, in that. One of them is that sort of as per the old American one-drop rule, anybody who has any kind of ancestry who's not white is going to consider themselves Latino or Asian or black, and we actually see empirically that that's not true, that people who have one Latino grandparent don't think of themselves as Latinos. I know, but but that doesn't stop the fear of the of the white people of becoming a minority in their own country, because that's the story, isn't it, that I'm a foreigner in my own land. Um, that's right. I think there's a real fear of sort of losing cultural uh, and political dominance. Um, and by the way, even in places where that doesn't seem to make much sense, like Central Europe, where you have... Yeah, 50 refugees make people think that they're going to lose their, their, their identity and their, um, and their norms in countries like Hungary and, uh, and the Czech Republic. Yeah, and that sounds sort of crazy, but when you look at the work of people like Ivan Krashtev, um, he makes a pretty good case that that is sort of psychologically what's going on in the minds of those voters. They look at Western Europe and they look at the degree of depopulation that they're experiencing, and they have this sort of existential cultural fear, um, which... which well, a lot of these countries have lost 20% of their populations and in the last few years. Anyone who's, who's young and able is no longer... Yeah, the, the Khrushchev tells this great joke about there only being um, two ways to a better future in, uh, if you're you know, a Bulgarian youngster. And they're called Terminal A and Terminal B of uh, the Sofia International Airport. <laughs> yeah. So, so those are the two the two things which are which are driving this uh, collapse in faith in in, in democracy and the, the kind of hunger for tough rulers in different places. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're two of the big ones. And they, I mean, there's also the rise of social media. There's also the feeling in a lot of rural areas that they've really been uh, left in the lurch. Um, but I think those two things are, are, are the most important and they sort of feed off of each other as well, right? I mean, it's one thing to look at, you know, the rise of ethnic minorities and either feel like they're doing really well or feel like the state is doing too much for them through the welfare state. You know, if you're doing well and optimistic about your own future, um, it's sort of easier for people to say, oh, well, that's great. Isn't it wonderful that my neighbor who's an immigrant from you know, India or Bangladesh or um, or Mexico is doing great. Whereas if you feel like, well, look, I, I'm doing really badly and my country hasn't delivered on its promises to me. And now I look over there and, and those people seem to be getting a better deal than I am. It, it sort of reinforces um, that that anger. And, 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 and often economic dislocation, I think, can lead to a greater emphasis on identity as well. So I, I've, I've been thinking about the sort of distinction between earned identity and descriptive identity. When you ask people 20, 25 years ago, who are you? A lot of them said, well, I'm a coal miner, or I'm a foreman in a factory, or I'm a member of a union. And as they lost some of those jobs, um, perhaps they found new jobs, perhaps they're you know, working at Tesco's or in an Uber, but those new jobs don't give them the same identity, the same pride. When you ask them, who are you? They might say, well, I'm Scottish and I want Scottish independence. <laughs> or they might say, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm white and I don't like, you know, black people in, in, in my state. So I think there's all of those ways in which these two main factors reinforce each other. Uh, do you think that it's a cycle and that we're basically uh, going for a bad kind of period? Or do you think that this is a trend and that it's ultimately going to end with authoritarianism? I think it depends a lot on what you think about the larger thrust of economic history and social history. Um, you know, going back to sort of the assumptions of political scientists, perhaps they're right, but all you need for democratic stability is relative affluence. And most likely will remain affluent societies. But the more pessimistic assumption is that actually what it takes is this continual improvement in living standard, this sort of what's called absolute income mobility. To look back at your childhood and say, you know what, I'm doing much better now than I was when I was a kid. And it's unclear that we're going to be able to sustain that. For all kinds of reasons, economists are quite skeptical about that. And that makes it much more scary. because We've never been in a situation of democratic stability while incomes have stagnated. You simply don't have historical evidence or empirical evidence on how supposedly consolidated democracies like Britain or the states behave under those circumstances. Okay, so can we also talk a bit about how this change in domestic politics might affect the, the kind of liberal international order? Because there are obviously a lot of elements of that liberal international order which have become mobilizing features for the new political movements that are seeking to capitalize on the trends that you're talking about. So free trade is obviously a big one. Migration and, and, uh, and open borders is another one. There's a lot of talk about kind of open versus closed as the new dichotomy rather than left versus right. And that um, is obviously something which um, people like Marine Le Pen have played up in a big way in the in the French elections and Macron in 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 many ways um, uh, didn't 
run away from being the candidate of openness, though he was kind of offering protection and, and, and trying to to uh, to mitigate some of the 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 the, uh, the kind of negative features of, of openness with this idea of a Europe that can protect and um, by European Act and other kinds of things like that. But uh, how how do you think that um, the international order survives these domestic changes? Yeah, so this is sort of here we're going back into complicated territory, right? Um, I, I, look, I think that one of the things that made the liberal international order work, even though it included authoritarian regimes within it, was that its architects and in many ways its most powerful constituents were liberal democracies who did favor openness over closeness in, in terms of that particular context. And what we're seeing now is more and more of these architects of a system having second thoughts about whether they actually want to remain in the system, whether they want to um, retain its rules in the way that they had worked for a long time. And that's partially because the, 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 the root of that sort of liberal democracy at home, the root of that populism at home, is a claim to simplicity. It's a claim that you don't need complicated systems. You just have to have somebody who actually stands up for your own country, for the views of ordinary people, and does a way of all. And that's very difficult to reconcile with complicated multilateral negotiation. And so my fear is that if this illiberal democracy at home is going to continue, if populists like Donald Trump are going to retain their power and even take over some other countries, um, you will see them um, call in doubt the idea that it's important to have real international cooperation, that there's something to international cooperation that goes beyond a zero-sum game, that it's worth making some short-term sacrifices and respecting rules even if you could violate them because it is in the long run in your interest to have a rule-bound international order. And of course, there's a real risk that some of these populists, in order to project their strength and in order to distract from their failures, will keep having an incentive to pick big international fights that will in themselves erode the international order. So you know, I guess what I want to say is it's not a straightforward case where to have a liberal international order, you have to have all of its participants being liberal democracies at home. But I do think you need a minimum number of powerful stakeholders who are truly committed to liberal democratic norms at home in order to preserve some of the basic elements of a liberal international order in the long run. And there's now real doubt as to whether that will happen. And to what extent do you think it makes sense to talk of a liberal international order? I mean, one of the interesting things about where we started this conversation was the way that you were unpacking some of the domestic consensus and talking about the tensions between liberalism and democracy in a, in a domestic context. Do you think that the liberal international order really is a single system or do you think that there are tensions within um, that order between different systems and that some of... Uh, those uh, orders might survive and, in fact, thrive and even get built up whilst others recede? Or, or do you think it, that it's going to be about a descent into chaos and anarchy and uh, autarky? You know, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think through it. So, so it's not clear to me that that's the most helpful way of describing what a system is. I think most systems that are worth thinking about are complex and have real tensions within them. So I wouldn't say it's either sort of one set, take it or leave it, coherent system, or it's sort of completely separable. Um, 
I think the way to think about it is similar to a domestic case, right? I mean, there are real problems with the way our liberal democracies are run at the moment. There are real problems with the economic distribution system we have domestically. Um, there may even be real institutional failures. It may be that we actually want to really rethink um, how elections should work in the 21st century. But you can do all of that while preserving the basic architecture and the basic goals of liberal democracy. Now, I think there's something similar to be said here in the international. Clearly, um, at the moment, uh, there's this joke that I, I forget who first said it, perhaps you remember, uh, the problem with the liberal international order is that only one of those three words is popular, and it's not liberal, it's not international, it's the word order. And and so, you know, clearly we need to make it more popular, both in terms of giving other countries um, a real stake in it. I think countries like India or Nigeria, um, rising powers that have sort of thought of themselves as semi-members of that order, who have often tried to push against it in a recognition of its unjust element. And for look, since this is a really stable thing, I just push against it and and get some concessions. And I think they now have to recognize that it's become a pretty hollow order, that if they keep pushing against it, it might talk over, and that the world that would come after that would be much worse. So they actually have a stake in rescuing. But in order to do that, we have to reform the order. We have to make it more fair. We have to give them a stake. We have to give them a reason to preserve it. Now, isn't there a direct tension between making it more international and making it more liberal? Because, you know, if you think about the big powers in the world today, whether it's, you know, Modi's India, Putin's Russia, Xi Jinping's China, Erdogan's Turkey, you know, Sisi's Egypt, um, you can think of a lot of words that would define their, those regimes, but maybe liberal wouldn't be right at the top of the list. So the more stake that you give those countries in the order and the more you allow them to reform it, the more its DNA will be uh, hollowed out of its uh, liberalism. I agree, but I mean, I think that's why you should try and look towards countries that aren't, you know, Iran and China and uh, Russia, um, but are the sort of rising powers, which aren't perfect liberal democracy at home for sure, that I think have a better chance of um, embracing some of those basic liberal elements of the international order. I might have missed these rising powers that, that are committed to liberalism and post-Westphalian things. Can you? Can you? I mean, I, look. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's there's perfect examples, right? But when you think of places like Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, and so on, um, I think you have a set of countries that are you know far from perfect, but that will help to determine whether or not we preserve some. And I think in order to do that. We have to be willing to rethink it in some fundamental ways to have some little reforms of it, but in the hope of uh, rescuing its core ideas. Okay, so maybe to, to as we kind of come towards the end of our conversation, we can go a bit deeper into one of the orders that I know you've been thinking about a lot, which is the whole question of, of climate. I know, I know you've been teaching a course on that at, at Harvard. To, to what it, if we take that as a microcosm of the liberal order, there's been a lot of fuss about uh, Trump's decision to pull out of the, the Paris Climate Treaty. I mean, how, how do you see the politics of uh, an international order on climate evolving? Um, you know, the, the, the weird thing about the Paris Treaty was that it was both, you know, one of the most optimistic signs and one of the most substantive agreements that we've come to. 
I mean, it didn't actually stipulate any any real rules, um, and it certainly didn't have any enforcement mechanism. Your European roots are coming out, Yasha, because I mean, that's exactly, I think that's totally right. I mean, on the one hand, it was great to have an agreement, but at the same time, it was a very Westphalian agreement, and it was about a bunch of countries coming together and, and saying that they would do whatever they were going to do. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, look at us, we've all agreed to do something, aren't we great? But, but, but you know, I think if I have a European attitude to sort of what Paris Agreement is, I might have an American attitude to um, what actually will change climate change, itself climate change. In the end, I do think Europeans tend to talk often about climate change, in t- and by the way, American environmentalists as well, in terms of, you know, we have to change how we live, you know, you're immoral if you want to drive an SUV, you know, uh, any form of AC is sort of immoral. Um, and it, it can be a sort of slightly lecturing set of attitudes that drives opposition to anything. I mean, essentially, if people feel like their lifestyle is going to be fundamentally threatened if we are to deal with climate change, then they either say, well, who cares about climate change, or they start to deny it. And that's something we obviously see more strongly in the United States than elsewhere. Uh, but that's in part because the lifestyle of a lot of Americans is threatened more strongly by the kinds of vision that, that European countries say put forward about what it would mean. And so I actually think that the most important things to invest a lot of money into research and development of clean energy and so on. And, and on that, actually, the United States has in many ways been leading. And we now have a set of really upbeat news that is often overlooked about the incredible price drop in solar energy, the still more nascent but very substantive uh, price drop in battery technology, which is really important if solar is going to become a real alternative to fossil fuels, um, and so on and so forth. So I think that you know there's a, there's a big and important role for government regulation here. And in order to get government regulation domestically, you have to have some amount of international coordination. But I think a lot of this is going to be solved, if it is going to be solved, by the technological progress, which gives private actors and companies and firms an incentive to move away from fossil fuels, which is purely monetary, because at some point, hopefully, renewable energy will actually be cheaper. And at that point, a lot of the work is going to be done by the market. Wow, the perfect synthesis of, of European roots and American citizenship. <laughs> um, Thank you very much, Yasha. Can I, um, uh, there are two more things I'd like to do before the end of the podcast. One is um, we're going to, we ask everyone who appears on the podcast to complete the sentence that the liberal order is dot, dot, dot. What would you put after your dots? Full of flaws, but much better than anything that might take its place. Okay. And finally, um, we also uh, ask people to suggest a reading list for people who want to go deeper into these uh, territories and we'll put that up on our website are there any books or articles that you think are must reads for people who want to go deeper on the things that we've been talking about include your own in that list yes well um, you should definitely read the people versus democracy why liberal democracy is in danger and how to save it which will be out of harvard university press in- you should listen to uh, the good fight uh, which is my uh, podcast in which I uh, talk to a bunch of interesting people to figure out policies, ideas, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists. Um, I think in terms of good books about uh, this sort of broader set of topics and the rise of populism, 
um, Ed Luce's The Retreat of Western Liberalism, which is just out a few weeks ago, uh, is very good. Um, Ivan Krushtev does what um, Slavoj Žižek so desperately pretends to do, which is to have uh, real insight uh, through wit. Um, he has a great new book coming out called After Europe. Uh, yeah, why don't these are the quite recent books? So why don't I uh, why don't I stick with that? And as a third recommendation, just because it's always great to think about historical change and 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 includes the great classic Italian line that everything has to change, everything may remain the same. Uh, the the leopard. Fantastic. Well, it's been great fun talking to you. Actually, we ended on quite an optimistic note considering where we started. And um, I will put up links to all the things that you talked about here. I strongly recommend the Good Fight podcast as well if people are interested in uh, hearing Yasha make sense of a lot of these big themes in, uh, and hash them out with other people. And for now, from Yasha Munk and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the End of the World series. And if you write a review, we will, even if it's bad, we will send you an End of the World mug to your address. So please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast.